welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 177. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now today we do have a Q&A episode once again. So I'm actually going to jump into this first question, Jack. And we actually got this asked a number of times. So I thought people clearly want to know the answer. And the question ultimately is, why do competitors keep their carbs so high and fats so low during a comp prep? Now, I think first off, there's probably a number of advantages to keeping your carbs relatively higher in proportion to the total amount of calories that you're getting from dietary fat during a prep. But I think also perhaps removing the word so from that too, because let's be realistic. When you are in an energy deficit and you're dieting toward the stage, I don't think anything is going to be so high in terms of nutrition, unless I guess, you know, some people are just abusing food volume in that sense. But, you know, it's, it's, it is all relative, but I do think there are a number of advantages to consuming a larger proportion of your daily calories from carbohydrates compared to dietary fat. You know, just for example, like there's going to be a number of benefits to your performance, your ability to retain muscle mass while you're dieting. Obviously it can visually enhance your look as a bodybuilder. You have improvements to your daily energy levels. You might feel better mood wise. You have better sleep can improve overall health because you might just be able to eat more plants might help regulate your appetite, better digestion. There's a number of benefits, but, uh, Let's dig into some of those, Jack. All right, so first, let's touch on perhaps training performance. Yeah, well, we know that glucose and stored form of glucose in our muscles and liver glycogen is um, one of the main fuel sources used for the style of resistance training that we're doing in the gym. And therefore, if we're primarily relying on fat as a energy source, it's not gonna be quite as useful from a resistance training perspective. Mm. Because you really have to fuel that anaerobic work. Mm, for sure. And I think some people often overestimate how much dietary fat that the body needs in order to function efficiently and optimally. And that like, can be as low as like 0.5 grams per kilo or even, even lower than that for shorter periods. But I think usually I reference 0.5 grams per kilo. So if there's a 50 kilo female, that's 25 grams of mm. fat a day. Mm. And even obviously that's certainly pretty damn low, right? Mm. I think for, for most females, I usually put them on around 40 grams of dietary fat per day, at least when they're in their dieting phases. But generally people are closer up to maintenance calories around like 0.7 to one gram per kilo of body weight is a pretty sweet spot. So maybe that's landing anywhere somewhere in the realm of like 50 to 70 grams of dietary fat per day. But We've discussed this before and the fact that like dietary fat, it's not just about the total amount of fat that you're consuming per day. It's about where those fat sources actually coming from. Because I would argue that someone consuming a diet with a wide variety of different dietary fats, mainly coming from like mono and polyunsaturated sources would probably be advantageous compared to someone consuming more dietary fat, but maybe it's only coming from like two or three sources, you know, you might have a girl that's on 40 grams of fat per day, but if she's consuming that from 
plenty of nuts and seeds and she's got some oily fish in there and she's also got like avocado and egg yolks and cheese and things of that nature rather than you know you kind of hear about these pretty stock standard bodybuilding diets where someone might just be consuming like almond butter and some dark chocolate and you know they get trace sources of fats from like oats and maybe some red meat during the day and that's kind of it Mm. so i think that it really is in that case obviously quantity still matters to a degree and how you're distributing it throughout the day but you can't overlook quality yeah for sure same with the carbohydrate sources Mm. as well i think like we got to remember that carbs are also aiding us in i would say probably more aspects of nutrition than fats are Mm. from a nutrient perspective Mm. again depends on the type of carbs that you're consuming if you're just having white rice then that's not great (laughs) But carbohydrates are aiding us in terms of dietary fiber because, I mean, technically vegetables and fruit uh, come under that bracket of carbohydrates. Mm. And yeah, that that assists us with quite a large number of vitamins and minerals. Mm, Absolutely. I think that if you are consuming a larger portion of your calories during prep from carbs, you are going to be consuming a lot more micronutrition, like you said provided your your nutrient intake is sound and it's not just from very refined sources. But absolutely, it does really open the doors for you can get more micronutrients in from a variety of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, pulses, dairy sources, etc. But what about when you're dieting too? Like you want to feel like you're eating something. You mm. want to have to at least try to control appetite to the best of your ability. And because we know per gram of carbohydrate it's only 50% of the energy density per gram of dietary fat, you are going to be able to sit down to a meal that visually is a larger meal. So you can consume more food volume. And yes, with that is going to come more dietary fiber too, but I think it can just really help from an appetite and a satiation standpoint. And yeah, man, like regularly going to the bathroom, that's always nice as well. And also related more to the comp prep aspect of things, more specifically to bodybuilding, we got to remember that carbohydrates help us look our best Mm. by, again, topping up our muscle glycogen stores and dietary fat just won't do that. Mm. So you don't exactly want to be fat loading before your shows. (laughs) No, although some people do that. (laughs) I think, I mean, I, I don't really know enough specifically about fat loading within reason Mm. to comment too much, but I've never tried it myself. Mm. Our muscles, they do have intramuscular triglyceride stores. And like with every gram of dietary fat or intramuscular triglyceride, you can store like an additional one milliliter of water. But you think about it in contrast to glycogen, you're storing anywhere between like two to four milliliters of water per gram of glycogen. So if the point is to actually visually enhance your look and you want to look fuller and have larger muscle bellies, because muscles are like 70% water, I think that you'd probably be better off going down the carbohydrate route. Because I think as well, someone who's so chronically dieted, if you do just start eating a whole bunch of egg yolks, you know, and you're just going haywire with a spoon and, and the peanut butter jar, how can you be so sure that that dietary fats going to intramuscular triglyceride stores and not just refilling all of your body fat cells. Mm. Well, I think energy balance is key there. Yeah. And well, you're taking you. Yeah. But either way, I think that you'd be taking a little bit of a, 
a little bit of a risk, being a bit risque. Yeah, I just think that someone's calorie intake would be the limiting factor there because not everyone can afford to load on on an, on a lot of calories. Like mm. some people don't even need to really have a aggressive load in general. Mm. They just kind of stick to their lower days. Mm. What about from a vascularity standpoint too? Like when you generally eat more carbohydrates combined with a bit more fluid, a bit more salt, you look a lot more vascular as well, provided you're lean enough. I've never quite seen anyone consume a lot of dietary fat and then just like the veins start popping. Mm. Yeah, again, I think the, I know that the mechanism with sodium behind that is mainly in relation to like acute blood pressure spikes. Mm. And I assume it's potentially something similar along with carbohydrates as Mm. well. Yeah. But overall, I think that the consensus is that consuming more carbohydrates rather than dietary fat when you are dieting is probably going to be advantageous, but that doesn't mean it's all just carbs and no fat. There obviously has to be some sort of macronutrient balance there. But I also don't think that you can dismiss the fact too that carbs generally just make us feel a little bit better. Obviously you have sustained blood glucose levels, you've got sustained energy levels during the day, Like it can really help to acutely enhance people's mood when they eat a few carbohydrates and also just quality of sleep as well. I think there's, there's a hell of a lot of advantages to it. Yeah. We also just saw some recent research from Dr. Louise Burke about keto diets versus like more balanced carbohydrate diets. And I believe both groups were in an energy deficit. Mm, No, interestingly with that is that the ketogenic diet was actually at energy maintenance, whereas Mm. the higher carbohydrate diet, they were the ones in an energy deficit. And that was performed in cyclists, that study, but it actually went to show that even despite being in an energy deficit, the carbohydrates in a sense were almost protective of those athletes actually maintaining their bone mineral density. And the others who actually were consuming a very high percentage of their calories from just dietary fat, I think it was like 80% of total calories from fat, they were really not doing well for their bone mineral density. And they were actually at a risk of losing bone mineral density, despite not being in a deficit and exercising hard. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mm. guess another reason not to not to go keto. Yeah, exactly. But that's just the whole thing though, too, is that like, if carbohydrates are going to help you perform and hold on to your performance during that chronic dieting phase, because you have to think about it, it's pretty stock standard that most preps these days are 25 plus weeks. That's basically like half a year that you are essentially just relying on your own body's like stored energy sources, plus a little bit of additional coming from food. But that's a long ass time to be trying to maintain your training performance because we know maintaining training performance, everything that you achieved in the improvement season, holding on to that for dear life in a prep, that is the avenue in order to maintain your hard earned muscle mass. And if carbohydrates are going to help you do that, you're going to be able to step on stage with a more muscular physique. So you you have to, you just cannot dismiss that performance aspect. Mm. Yeah, there's no denying it. Mm. Performance, health, and uh, you get a sick pump and you look good. (laughs) Okay, so I think we did that one pretty good due diligence. Now, this next one, people are really curious about maintenance phases, Jack. So this one asks how to get the most out of a maintenance phase and how to make it successful. 
is it beneficial to do a long maintenance phase between cutting and bulking? And what variables should you track during a maintenance phase? Hmm. Well, I'm not the biggest advocate of maintenance phases. Like I think I would very rarely schedule, if we're talking purely about physique athletes here, which mm -hmm. I guess we are then, I would rarely implement a extended maintenance phase. Mm. I think maybe the most common times would be if someone was injured or if someone was maybe struggling with their eating from an, either an emotional or mental perspective, mm. then might do a maintenance phase um, or potentially in between phases of like bulking and cutting and cutting and bulking. Not, not really cutting and bulking, but maybe bulking to cutting, but I'm not gonna do a long maintenance phase there mm. either. Um, I think there are other coaches that certainly propose and recommend longer maintenance phases, but I, I just... I have a question for you. Like, what would you define as maintenance? When someone says, oh, I just wanna stay at maintenance, what's like some of the first things that pop into your head? Maintenance, I just mean, uh, to me, just means that their body weight is hovering around a mm. similar range. Yeah, so I, I think that's an important point to get across too, is like, what is meant by maintenance? And I think you and I are both along those same lines as we always jump to the scale weight, right? But we have to remember that just because one thing is maintaining, I don't think that everything else has just halted across the board too. Mm. I think that there can always be moving parts. I don't think yeah, many people would think that. I think when people think about maintenance phases, they don't think their training is on maintenance mm. or their, or their, you know, their dietary intake is on maintenance. Yeah. Or their energy outputs on maintenance, but well, technically their dietary intake would be on maintenance. Mm. But what I, what I would like to get across is that like, even if just someone's body weight is maintaining, that doesn't mean that every single other aspect of their health and their nutrition, their lifestyle, that has to be on maintenance mode too. Like there can always be other things that are still progressing while perhaps just for a brief period of time, maybe, yeah, you are floating around a similar body weight. So it's not like, you know, you're saying goodbye to just progressions in any manner. Mm. Yeah, well, I think um, going on from that, I, the, again, the ex maintenance phase that I would examine that I would probably, because I don't really want to talk about maintenance when injured or maintenance when someone has um, some, needs some, a break mentally. I think those are sort of extraneous circumstances. So the most common one that I would do would be a small period at the peak of the gaining phase before cutting, because you don't mm. just want to hit your peak body weight number and then cut the following day. Mm. I think it makes sense to solidify that body weight and even kind of solidify body weights throughout the gaining phase Maybe if you have more of a jump one week, then it makes sense to hold that for a week or two prior to then getting into a surplus for longer or raising the surplus. And I guess another circumstance someone might want to maintain is if they they just genuinely are happy with their body comp and like they don't feel comfortable gaining any more weight or they don't want to gain more weight. But we do have to remember that being in a surplus is the most optimal environment for muscle gain. So. Mm. If the majority of your off season is looking like a maintenance phase, then you're probably doing a good job of maintaining your muscularity. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Because 
Well, it just comes down to that fact that like long-term change requires change. So you have to see something changing ultimately in the long term. But what about if someone did want to commit to a maintenance phase? Let's say they are trying to solidify a certain body weight before they then jump into another phase where they're deliberately going to try to change it. Or what about in a pre-prep phase before someone's actually entering into their comp prep? Like I know you and I are both big advocates of running at least a period of four to eight weeks of pre-prep, which is essentially kind of like a maintenance or a main gaining phase. If we've got someone's body weight staying within, you know, a, quite a, you know, a titrated range. And I, especially working primarily just with females, I never like to just get a certain number in people's heads. I'm never like, we must be maintaining 62.5 kilos or else, you know, you're no longer at maintenance. Like I really like pe- to give people a, a rough range. So I'm saying like, okay, as long as we see your body weight kind of fluctuating between these two values, which is usually about a kilogram or slightly less, I would argue that basically is maintenance. Mm. Um, but what should people be tracking if they're just trying to keep a certain body weight? What else could they track? Well, yeah, I think the body weight is good. And the pre-prep phase is also another good example of a maintenance phase. Some Sometimes I do like to do a pre-prep if they've gotten lean enough in the mini cut of the pre-prep, then I'll actually do a, a slight surplus just to kind of reverse metabolic adaptation mm. as quickly as possible. And I, yeah, I think looking at someone's body weight fluctuations like the months prior is important because if some, if you notice someone, they might have a job where their body weight does fluctuate a lot, like maybe night shift, then um, factoring that into the body weight range that you're trying to achieve. Like definitely not having like 52 kilos as your maintenance, rather have it like even 51 to 53 mm. makes a lot more sense. So the things that I would be monitoring is obviously, I'm assuming that individual is tracking their nutrition. So I would monitor that and monitor their output as well and monitor their training performance too. Mm. Those are the three main factors. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I was trying to get the point across at the beginning is that even if you are maintaining a body weight, within a range that doesn't mean that everything else is on maintenance mode too so even during that phase it's not like you're saying you know goodbye to any performance progressions in the gym you should still be fighting to improve your training performance even at the same body weight or hell i would argue even nutrition could be a little bit variable too because if someone is learning to train harder even more proficiently that doesn't mean that they're always going to be on the exact same maintenance calories. Their maintenance calories actually might be shifting ever so slightly as well. And there's no denying that like people can slightly change their body composition while sitting at a maintenance body weight too, which is always a pretty cool thing to actually do in a pre-prep phase because you might say, okay, we're dedicating these next six weeks to basically you maintaining this body weight. We're going to try to get your calorie intake up as high as possible to give you a really good launching pad before we then go into prep. Obviously we're tracking training performance across the board, but actually being able to make those photo comparisons between their progress photos, between start to now, it's like, similar body weight but like look actually you actually did achieve a little bit of body recomp during that time Mm. yeah body recomp is totally possible like i don't want to come across as someone who is Mm. hating on maintenance phases because i'm not but um you can only achieve so much with body recomp Mm. some people depending on the situation can certainly do more than others and i think often people are also 
mistaking just results that haven't shown yet from the phase prior mm. as recomp. So for example, if you do a cut and then you go to maintenance, then potentially you're also just seeing results like fat loss from the cut, which hasn't reflected in, mm. in photos yet. Because it's not like you lose body weight and then the, you lose body fat mm. immediately. There is some lead on time mm. afterwards. Yeah. Same with the bulk as well. Like you might just, because you're at maintenance, you might just be losing a little bit of water weight or inflammation and some extra muscle is showing up as well. Mm, absolutely. But of course, we have to be realistic. It does reach a point of diminishing returns at some point. Probably, I'd say after you get probably past that like eight week mark, especially. And if it's like, okay, not much has really changed here. We actually do need to be more deliberate and actually properly change something. See your body weight shifting in some direction or the other. I think actually another really appropriate time to implement perhaps a maintenance phase is when you very first sign up with a client and you don't really know too much about them yet. And even if you actually look at their physique and you're like, yeah, okay, I have a good you know sense that uh, we do want to be entering into a solid building phase in the future. Or yeah, you know, we could probably afford to do a dieting phase first before we then go into an extended building phase. I don't think that you need to always touch like shifting body weight immediately. I think it can actually be pretty damn advantageous to keep body weight somewhere on a maintenance mode, at least for a few weeks, but like, just make sure that you get all of your other ducks in a row. So make sure that someone is refining their nutritional accuracy. They're building their habits. They're building their routines. They're getting accustomed to probably a brand new training program as well, so that you can really have a good idea of okay, based on this person's consistent energy output through all of these habits and routines that they've built coincided with they're now consistently consuming a certain amount of energy across the board. Now I've actually got some good data under my belt as a coach to say, all right, if we're now going to go into a building or a dieting phase, then where do we actually need to go from? So you kind of already have a really solid set point rather than just taking a stab in the dark and mm. you're just like, oh, I think these calories would have you in a deficit. <laughs> yeah. And that's usually a time too that people really can take advantage of a little bit of a recomp as well, body-wise, but also you just feel so much better just being in a really solid routine. Mm. Yeah, I mean, less relevant to competitors too would also be if someone is in a weight loss journey and or they're in that sort of twilight zone between okay i can't really cut anymore because i've exhausted my options with cutting like we're literally just getting diminishing returns but my body fat is also too high still to really be gaining i don't mm. really want to gain either so therefore you're left with maintenance and that's mm -hmm. kind of like you've just been you're two out of the three options are not optimal um so you're kind of left with maintenance mm. as the final result yeah exactly but it's more it's more, more a midpoint it's not a destination yes mm. yeah cool awesome all right well jack we'll move on to our final question of the day and this one says is there a place for refeeds during prep if so how often and what should a refeed look like yes there is room for them <laughs> If you've planned your timeline accordingly. <laughs> yeah, there's, I think refeeds is even just a bit of an arbitrary term. Like it can, there, there's so many sort of terms designated to like bringing calories up to maintenance, like a diet mm. break, a refeed. Some people still call them a cheat day, of course, or a cheat meal, <laughs> untracked meal, etc. So 
one of the times where people, or I hope most people no longer think that having a refeed sort of results in some amazing sort of physiological changes to metabolism or to your testosterone. Um, we know that if, if something is achieved chronically, so if you've chronically lowered your metabolism or if adaptive thermogenesis has happened over the course of like 20 weeks or your testosterone has come down over 20 weeks or maybe you're a female and you've lost your menstrual cycle over the course of 20 weeks of dieting, etc. Like a one day refeed or a week refeed isn't really going to change things. Mm. So it's mainly going to alter things acutely. And the longer you refeed for, probably the better results you'll get. But it's mainly going to be psychological. Mm, Yeah. I think there's a hell of a lot of pros to implementing refeeds. And again, they are certainly a luxury to implement during prep because we have to think about like you are dieting toward a deadline. And the most important part is actually reaching that deadline and looking the part from a conditioning standpoint. But you know, you're responsible, you plan well ahead, then you should be pre-planning, you know, to allocate times for higher carbohydrate days, refeed days, diet breaks, mock peak weeks, the whole lot during your prep. And I think, again, that's why it's pretty stock standard to actually have a 25 week prep rather than just cutting it short, you know, because even if someone could get ready, let's say in 18 to 20 weeks, like, yeah, you could do it, but man, just having an additional five weeks up your sleeve, like that additional time can just be absolutely golden during a prep because having the additional five weeks in a prep far more can change body composition wise when you are not missing a beat for five weeks compared to think about you and you and I, Jack, how much have we really changed in the last five weeks of our improvement season? Mm. You know, like body weight's changed by a few hundred grams. You know, we got an additional 2.5 kilos on a lift here or there, an extra rep on our shoulder press. Like, yeehaw! Like, you know, obviously those little things are celebrated, but from an actual visual standpoint, the amount that you can change in five weeks of just like going hard compared to just going hard in an improvement season, dramatic. So, anyway, I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but pre plan accordingly. I think there's a hell of a lot of benefits in terms of like just having a little bit more food. It really does help people just feel just a a lower perception of just stress. They feel a lot more relaxed. Obviously there's those enhancements to your training performance too, so that you can hold on to those numbers that you are achieving in the improvement season to therefore hold on to your muscle mass as well. And I think it's just really strategic that if you are implementing refeed days or higher carbohydrate days, and personally, I like to call them like higher days and lower days rather than, you know how some people are like, oh, it's my low carb day. It's my high carb day. Like, I think that's all kind of subjective because like Mm. sometimes I might have a female on, you know, 200 grams of carbohydrates on her lower days and then she might be on 350 on a higher day right like but relative to someone else who's dieting hard on 100 grams of carbs per day and their higher days are 200 grams i look at these values and i'm just like i dare do i say 200 grams is a low carb day maybe for you but relative to your high carb days it's just lower um anyway i think that there's a lot of benefits from that standpoint. Plus visually, obviously like that's, that's the number one goal. You want to be stepping on stage, looking your absolute best. So being able to implement higher carb days where you can 
fill out and then track someone's physique and see, okay, visually, is this actually enhancing your physique? So it can kind of act as somewhat of like a mock peak week as well. I think that it might be able to like acutely reduce people's diet fatigue and their food focus as well. Like if they know that they have higher days on the horizon, that can just help with just like mental fortitude and grit to push through those lower days. Mm. Yeah, I think there are also some, I was maybe a bit too short before I said there aren't any physiological benefits because I don't think we know quite enough yet. But what I was trying to say there was really just reversing. We can't really reverse any of the chronic changes that have occurred in the diet. But there are there might be some acute physiological changes, like just briefly giving back to the system through a higher day, like... As you said, it might have some positive implications for, for training performance. And it also, of course, gives us a look at the physique in terms of with their glycogen restored um, mm. also, maybe not fully restored, but again, uh, as part of like a mock peak week, it just allows us to see how things are looking, mm. like what your condition is truly like, as opposed to just being super fat, uh, flat. And <laughs> super fat. <laughs> Rude. And... Because, yeah, when you're super flat and you don't have a pump, then it's very, very difficult to see what physique changes have actually occurred. Imagine if you just took that exact same sentence, but you reduced the word flat with fat. Mm. Imagine if you were super fat and you don't have a pump. It's very difficult to see the changes in your physique. Mm. Well, that's also true, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Get in condition, mates. <laughs> so, therefore, makes sense to periodically give back to the system, see how things are looking, reassess and continue with the deficit. Mm. And not the thing is not everyone will have that luxury. And I think it's probably maybe even more pertinent for people who haven't competed before because you don't really know their physique as well. Mm. And whereas more experienced competitors kind of know what their stage weight's going to be, it's just a matter of getting there. Mm. Yeah. I wonder from a physiological standpoint though, like because we know in the depths of prep, like sleep really can suffer. And like you try your absolute best to manage it to the best of your ability, but there's just gonna be those nights where you wake up at 2.30 in the morning and like you just are hungry and you can't get back to sleep and it's very distracting or you wake up like just wide awake and you can't get back to sleep and it's 2.30, but you're like, man, all right, might as well start the day. And then by like 9 or 10 a.m. that morning, you feel like you've already lived an entire day. It's rough, okay? It's hard to get around that. But at least anecdotally, I think for both you and I, the night after a high-carbohydrate day, you sleep a little bit better. And we know that with improved quality sleep, that just improves your quality of life. But from like a physique standpoint, the relative amount of body weight that you're losing, the literature does show that you're likely to lose more, a higher percentage of that body weight from body fat rather than losing your muscle mass as well. Plus, if you think about like being able to sleep through the night with things like growth hormone and just like better training performance the following day, etc., just like your circadian rhythm being in somewhat of a normal loop, I wonder if long-term like having higher carbohydrate days ever so slightly giving back to the system just intermittently like that could maybe play the slightest of roles but you know natty bodybuilders will take any 0.5 percent we can get yeah there are just so many factors there like the severity of the deficit and mm. like for example 
if you're having to restrict the low days to enable high days, because then ultimately like you, the weekly deficit still needs to be intact. So you Mm. can't just like give someone high days and not change the other days Mm. unless of course, like they're really, really, really on track. Mm. So what I'm saying there is like the low days might be so low then that sleep is impaired across the whole week anyway. Mm. And it might be better just to equalize calories throughout the whole week because then it'll be moderated days Mm. throughout. So yeah, there's, there's just so many considerations depending on the individual, like definitely someone who has, who is able to diet on more food. I think they're able to get away with a lot more. They can do those low and high days. They can do mid days. It's really a bit more Mm. down to personal preference there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you are trying to get into that gnarly level of conditioning during a prep, there is going to be no easy way around it. Like even if you are giving back to the system and let's say you've got one or two days in there where it's sprinkled in, woohoo, I get an extra hundred grams of carbs per day. Like anyone who's actually been comp lean knows that it's, it's just such an acute enjoyment, but it, it doesn't fix, you know, how you actually feel long-term. And really I would say like, it's, it's almost kind of just like splitting hairs, right? And if it's like, oh cool, this girl one day per week, she gets 300 carbs compared to 200 grams. Like ultimately if, if it's not actually going to deliver a better look at the very end, like it is kind of, it's, it's not actually making that big of a difference. And that's just a point that I want to make is that like refeeds, they can work really well for some people and having higher carb days, but they don't absolutely work for everyone. Like you might be surprised that some people, they really don't feel any different having more carbohydrates in their system. Like they still might just kind of feel a bit neutral or they might just kind of feel a little bit low key crap, (laughs) just really tired and fatigued, right? Some people, it doesn't really make a difference to their training performance. Some people, it does not make a difference to their physique visually. And I think that's a really important thing to do is that if you are implementing higher carbohydrate days with the purpose of visually enhancing someone's physique, or you're like, okay, I want to start, you know, practicing some mock peak weeks with you to identify, okay, what should we do with your peak week? How many days should we run high carb days? Should we run higher carb days, you know, at all? You need to be taking progress photos and making comparisons to actually justify your rationale for doing that. Because Some people visually, they actually don't respond very well to high carb days. They actually look a bit sharper if they're kind of just running lower carb days consistently, especially some females. Like if you just, you know, really boost up someone's carbs after they've been dieting linearly for a long time, they legit like do lose a bit of detail to their physique. They actually do retain a bit more fluid. It doesn't enhance the look. It disrupts some people's dieting momentum. Like it actually makes some people so food focused that they can actually crack on their diets. And again, even though, you know, you have sympathy and empathy for people and you might feel bad because someone's hungry and they're tired during a prep, if they aren't on track to be hitting their predicted stage weight, you can't just be going handing out high carb days and stuff, you know, like candy, if it's going to reduce the overall weekly energy deficit, like you said, because you know, you are dieting toward a timeline. They are a luxury, but if someone's just behind time, yeah, you want to give them, you know, throw them a bone, but at the same time, like you have to have their best competitive interests at heart for like the day that's going to matter most. Mm. So pros and cons, you know, but it's going to be situation dependent. Yep. 
plenty of things to think about mm-hmm. when it comes to more calories and carbs. Yes, absolutely. But at least we do know that more carbohydrates are advantageous compared to more dietary fat. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good number of questions for this week. But Jack, something that we'll finish on is one thing that you learned this week. Hmm. Well, I'm trying to think of something fishing related. <laughs> I was going to say something fishing related. Okay, well then you can say it first. <laughs> I wonder if I'm going to steal yours. But something that I have learned this week and that we've finally busted a bit of a mystery is that the thing is, is that we cast out, right, with our bait. And by the way, we've been using live bait recently. We invested in a yabby pump and we go out to the beach and we pump yabbies or what we now are called ghost shrimp and a bunch of pippies and sometimes we get little crabs, you know, basically free bait. Uh, but we cast out, right? And then you reel in and sometimes you feel like you're getting nibbles. You feel like you're getting bites and you're like, I'm on. And <laughs> you start reeling in, but then it goes, right? And you're like, what the heck? Like, I swear there was a fish on there. And then you keep slowly reeling in and then like you, you feel another tug and you're like, oh yes, I'm on again. And then you, you're tugging and then it goes. And you're like, what the heck? Turns out, man, there's crabs on the bottom of the ocean floor, and these guys are just totally playing with us. Because, like, our bait's obviously, you know, like, squiggling along the ocean floor. What do you call it, the ocean? Uh, that's a bit The channel extreme. floor? Yeah. <laughs> we are out there in, you know, in the Pacific, technically. Um, but, yeah, these crabs on the bottom, what they're obviously doing with their pinchers is they're pinching at our bait. And they're like, oh, it's mine. And then they'll hold on. And then we try to reel in. And then they'll just let it go. So, man, just totally playing with us. Mm. But, yeah, I, that's what I've realized. I've caught one crab, though, but I think it might have been by mistake because I, I caught him by the tail. Well, were you trying to catch him? Uh, I'll take anything I can get. <laughs> and he tasted good. I actually did keep him uh, and put him in a pot and ate his meat. Um, but... <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> the leg meat, guys. Um... <laughs> Anyway, I think it was by mistake. Like, I think I just, I hooked him accidentally by the tail and then he just, uh, he rolled up onto the beach, reeled him in. But that's what I've learned. You know, it's not actually always fish. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah, something that I learned that you said was the correct name. I think everyone just says yabbies because I guess they do look like yabbies. Mm. But they're only, like the bigger ones are really still only the size of your pinky. Mm. Even smaller than that. But they're, yeah, they're called ghost shrimp. Mm. So that's what I learned. Well, it would it be like the overarching, you know, like not the species, but you know, no, that, that, that animal the... kingdom tree where you've got like the flora and the fauna and then you've got... Well, it's, yeah, it's shrimp. I yeah. Think. So they come out under the big umbrella term of shrimp. It's kind of like, you know, we say we catch fish, right? But we know there's different species of fish. So that is the species of the shrimp. They're the ghost variety. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Well, on that note. <laughs> you heard it here first. Episode 177. It's the haunted fishing stories. Mm. Well, maybe we'll have to do solo episodes just on fishing. I think we might lose some followers then. No, I don't know. Again, I think that we are the number one fishing resource, at least in the bodybuilding sphere now. Yes. <laughs> We have caught a few now, you know, and barbecued quite a few too. People are even asking me on Instagram, how do you cook them? 
you know? And I think, I think it's really important to not overseason a fish, right? Like I think that if you actually want to taste the unique flavors of a fish, just put a bit of salt and pepper on them. Just make sure that you scale them, get the guts out, rinse them off, chuck them on a really hot barbecue. Like they taste so good, you know, like you don't need to lather them in, in marinade, you know, and sauces and everything like that. Like just, just appreciate the fish. Mm. I think everyone's different and I think everyone's uh, palate is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying before you go, you know, spicing it up, just try it with a little bit of salt and pepper and a little bit of barbecue charcoal. And I'm telling you, it ain't half bad. But uh, guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you in the next one.